It's great to be with you this morning. And um, as you might have heard, we are starting a new series today uh, from the book of Nehemiah. So if you would turn, if you have a Bible or click there or whatever you do these days to find the Word of God, um, I'd be so grateful if you join me. And I'm um, really looking forward to this. Uh, thank you, Gareth and the team for fantastic worship this morning. And over the next uh, weeks, we're going to be looking at this uh, superb uh, little book in the Bible um, uh, recorded uh, about the life of Nehemiah and his impact among the, the people of God. And um, so I hope that uh, you will follow me this morning as I lay a little bit of a foundation. May I pray? And um, then I'm going to get into the Word of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Father God, thank you so much, Lord, that we can gather here in London this morning. And Lord, we can focus on you, sing to you. You've unlocked our hearts to be able to sing, sing, sing. Now, Lord, as we uh, turn to your word, which is God-breathed, we thank you so much for it. We know that it's for our instruction. It's for our correction, Lord. It's for our building, our strengthening. And so I pray that it will do for us as a church and for us individually. So would you bless me this morning, Lord? Give me a clear mind and heart that I can serve my dear brothers and sisters well. Uh, this morning. I pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. I'm going to read to you from the New Living Translation. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, listen carefully. It's a little bit of history as we begin. And then you start to see um, the outpouring of this great man's heart. And I'm sure, like me, you're going to learn to love dear Nehemiah as we go. So verse 1, chapter 1, the book of Nehemiah. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was in the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some of the other men who just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. 
we have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands and decrees and regulations you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, I will live by them. Then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days... I was the king's cupbearer. So we meet Nehemiah, the cupbearer. I hope that over this last week, as you've gone through, if you weren't with us last Sunday, you've had a chance to listen to Daniel's message from last week. And for those of you from Biggin Hill, I'd really encourage you as well. It was an outstanding message where Daniel began to give us an understanding of what this whole atmosphere of living in a new era looks like. And over the week, I received messages from here, the leaders in the UK, from Africa, and I think even one from India, but I couldn't find it this morning just to be sure. For, uh, saying, wow, what a message, shouldn't you send that all over? And so I felt the weight of what Daniel brought, and I'm so grateful, even though he's run out at this very moment. They recognized, as I did, that God is doing something special among us. We're in a time where God has spoken to us about, about great things, but we're also time in history which is quite staggering at times. I'm not sure if you're one that watches the news or reads, reads the newspapers, but there's lots of ups and downs in the world. It's almost, my goodness, nothing stays the same for any length of time. Leaders find a way and then they lay it down. Leaders rise up and you think, oh, wow, we've got somebody who can really take us on, only to see them fall by the wayside. We've been living in such extraordinary times, as we will see Nehemiah did as well. But also, it would seem we're living in a time where those of us walking by faith are sensing that God is about to do something quite extraordinary. Whether you're here in the UK, but also in the, in the United States, across Africa, where it also seems to be happening already in many contexts, it seems that God is about to do something wonderful. Yeah, Thank you very much, Caleb. <laughs> let me move on. So Daniel said to us, come on, church, we're going to have to let go of some old things. We've got to find God's heart for the city. We've got to learn to live with a little bit of discomfort. That one went down really well, I noticed. All the amens and hallelujahs. And then he said, which I thought was so insightful, we're going to have to learn to live our Christian lives more outside the church than in it. 
over the decades. There's been such a, 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 a view that church happens here on a Sunday and then we go back to our normal lives. But I believe God's going to turn that around. And then he finished off saying, I believe in this season we're going to find simplicity in our pursuit of God. Isn't that wonderful? Like God saying, I'm near. So easy to find me. Just wonderful words. And I went away last week enjoying the sincerity of Daniel's word. I felt it had a purity. Yet there was a depth of seriousness to it. I thought, hmm. I said to Daniel, that wasn't so seeker friendly. <laughs> because it was truth. It was truth. And all I would say to us as we go to Nehemiah now, may I ask you, like I'm asking God for myself, would you keep oil in your lamp at this time? That wonderful parable Jesus told of the ten virgins, where so many just lost the plot. They weren't waiting as they were instructed to. Only a few remained faithful. And as a church plant, we join many others seeking to see God move powerfully and in this context to see uh, the church established and fulfill our small part in what God's doing. There are many around us. We're not the only one who've planted into London. There are many who've been here so many years before us and we stand alongside them. And I want to speak about one who's gone before us um, and a man who has greatly impacted my life because it's got such a, a personal context for us here in Westminster this morning. I have to go back to the year 1850 and to a funny little uh, periodical called the Household per Periodical. Never seen it. I'm sure you must probably find it online with everything that's there. But this little newspaper thing was produced um, every now and again. And one of the contributors on that particular one in 1850 was none other than Charles Dickens, the author of so many great novels. And in that, he wrote about our neighborhood, Westminster, this area. And in his article, he referred to Westminster as the Devil's Acre. In its day, his day, Westminster was a slum. It's actually where the word was used first, I understand. It wasn't in far-off lands, it was here in the UK. Westminster was a slum. I was wondering, I looked up quickly because I was just interested as I was writing. So I wrote in my notes here, Oliver Twist was written in 1839. And I wonder if it didn't come out of Westminster. I've never researched it. I, I don't know the history. But Westminster was a place of hopelessness, of crime, of poverty, of child labor, of prostitution and extreme violence at times. If you watch the movie, even Oliver Twist or read the book, you'll see it comes through in that. So Charles Dickens right, he experiences our neighborhood, this area that we're in, 
And he says, this is the devil's acre. This belongs to the devil. Everything that happens, there's no good. It's just darkness. Unbeknown, I would think, to jo Charles Dickens, a few years earlier, to him writing this, a young man stepped forward and God called him to have a heart for the devil's acre. Over the last few years, and if you listen to last week's message, Daniel refers to it, how God, over a three-year period, prepared him and many of us for what we are doing now. In the same way, God prepared this young man, 1840s, I think it was, yeah, 1841. And God gave him such a burden for this area of Westminster that he started to believe God. We don't, I don't know the full story because I haven't had time to research it fully. But I'm sure out of prayer and out of what we prayed earlier, just a longing for this area, he was moved in his spirit to believe God for Westminster and for what later would be called the Devil's Acre. 22 bold, wonderful people, men and women, young and old, just like you and I today, joined him. Joined him. And nine years before the household periodical, Samuel Martin planted a church called Westminster Chapel. He wasn't consumed with a vision of quantity. He didn't want to go in there and say, I want the biggest church in Westminster. That's my aim. I want to see hundreds gathering. But he was struck by the lack of the manifestation of the glory of God in our neighborhood. That's what moved his heart. That's what captured his heart. He was struck by that, so he wasn't about quantity. His heart was moved by the quality of what was happening. And his eyes were opened to the need. And so, whether it started in prayer or God speaking to him personally, or maybe even he saw somebody come to the Lord from the area and say, please bring this message into our slum, into Westminster. We don't know. But he started a work. I wonder all those years later when he got the household periodical and he's reading, Charles Dickens, wow, wow. He's called my area the Devil's Acre. I wonder what he thought, if he saw it. He most probably thought, Mr. Dickens, you've got no idea about the promises I have. You might see in the natural, but I've got promises in the supernatural. And he fulfilled his promises because, you see, God 
is faithful. When He speaks to us, when He calls us and commissions us, when He commissioned you to come and be part of this, He is faithful. And so, with 22 willing saints, Samuel Martin moved into Westminster. They built a little chapel, and if you walk into Buckingham Gate Road, not far from us here, you will see that was started off as a small little building, now is a 2,000 odd seater, I think, called Westminster Chapel. I'll read you some of his story that is online. It was a time of hope in May 1841, as 22 Christians, wow, I just realized we started with double that. You've got to help me this morning. <laughs> These are things to cheer about. Because when I see what he did with 22 people, what can we do with 40? Double portion. Ah. As 22 Christians sat in the beautiful newly built chapel on Buckingham Gate Road, full of faith in God for how he would move in that downtrodden and degraded area. With Westminster Chapel's first minister, Reverend Samuel Martin at the helm, the church began to make waves in the neighborhood. Ah, how? Almshouses, places of refuge for the poor, were established. Schools were built. If you look at the history, he took every child in slave labor, in, in child labor, and he started to educate them. He started at the bottom. When it changes society, that's what's happening behind these walls right now. Orphans were cared for. <coughs> Work schemes were organized for the unemployed men. Reverend Martin's gospel preaching and biblical authority made Westminster Chapel stand out as a light of hope in what was then one of London's poorest slums, rife with prostitution, squalor, and drug addiction. Even influential leaders at that time, like Lord Shaftesbury, some of you will know more about him than I do, and Dean Stanley of Westminster, the Dean of Westminster Abbey, began to hear of the chapel's impact in the area. What a story. What a story so close to our home. 22 people. Mandy's. The Charles's. The Honor Healy's, even a Richard. <laughs> That's the grace of God. And God calls them. Ordinary people. Ordinary people. One man, a simple vision, a simple calling. He had his own facility. I was a bit envious of that. Hmm, that's quite nice. One man, 22 people, but a vision from God. Over the years, Westminster Chapel 
had to remove the gardens in front. It used to be a very small little chapel. In fact, if you go upstairs and you're into what's now called the Campbell Morgan Library and you look down, you see the, the chapel. I think it's a games room now. But one man, 22 others, became 2,000-odd seats at the home of Campbell Morgan, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and they transformed Westminster. We start off today with a biblical account of a man who went before Samuel Martin, but the same story, Nehemiah. And we get introduced to him because he took time to record his memoirs. So he writes down, okay, let me stop building for a while. I need to just record the story of what God's done. And never forget that you are part of a story. You're not some little addition or something floating around there. You're part of the great story, the great narrative of God. Before you came Abraham's and Moses's, Joshua's, Ruth's, Deborah, all the great Bible characters, people just like you and I. And so we come to one now, Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Let's have a look at it. Let's understand, firstly, the context. And if you know your Bible, you'll know that we come into Nehemiah after a long period of difficulty for the people of Israel. David had established an amazing kingdom. I wouldn't go before that, but David established an amazing kingdom. Under his rule, there was peace, and they ruled over lands far and wide. And as came to the end of his life, one that had its ups and downs, but knew the glory of God, there was a time where he handed over to his son, Solomon, and God blessed him. And things just took off. Just an incredible story to read. And then sadly, wasn't happy with one wife or two, or three, or four, or five, or six, but 700. <laughs> and things didn't go well because it wasn't what God wanted and after Solomon and he started to fall and these wives and all the issues he must have dealt with I thought wow 700 wives that's 700 trash cans to put out on a Monday morning in Bromley <laughs> And all the other things we do. I make tea for Heather every morning. And I thought, he must have had busy mornings. <laughs> but then he was a king, so maybe he had others helping him. But soon after that, this kingdom started to fall in decay because of the leadership. And very soon, ten tribes moved further uh, uh, north. Two tribes were made in Judah. And there became two kingdoms. Brothers turned on brothers, southern kingdom of Judah, northern kingdom of Samaria. And they became almost like a civil war for year after year after year. And you can read about it in Chronicles, king after king, and this king and that king, and just one good, one bad. And in 722 B.C., 
the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. They came like locusts. Haven't got time to go into all the things they would do. The southern kingdom held out for another hundred and odd years. But eventually, Nebuchadnezzar raised up a mighty army. And we know that Judah fell as well. Just like God had said, if you follow me with all your ways, my blessing will be upon you. If you choose the path of following after other gods, you allow sin into your life. Brothers and sisters, what a warning for us. So easily. And very soon, Jerusalem was wiped out. If you read Chronicles 36, just a short little section that details how, uh, how Nebuchadnezzar comes in. It's terrible. said, they had no pity on the people. Jerusalem was wiped out. The, the temple was destroyed. Not only slaves, but taken into exile, those who survived. Seventy years, God said they would be there. And you will know even Boney M knew that because they ended up singing some of the songs. <laughs> can tell your age if you laughed at that. Uh, nothing to you. Where have you been? I would have worn my bony M suit this morning. No, you wouldn't want that, would you? A white one piece. No. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. And so life went on. And God blessed them in ba Babylon. He prospered them. But also there was a promise after 70 years, God would bring them through. And so we see this starting to happen in 539 BC. From, from the northeast, the Medo-Persians came in like a flood. Suddenly the Persians were taken captive. They were wiped out. Because God was working out his purposes. Cyrus, mighty king, followed by other kings. But in that time, God takes an ungodly man, a man who has no idea. And if you read it in the book of Ezra, I think it is, or right at the end of Chronicles, it says that God spoke to this ungodly king and said, I want you to go build a temple in Jerusalem. It's incredible. God just comes. I'm going to speak to you about our current history in a moment. And I want you to start thinking like that. In a moment, in a moment, God can speak to our leaders. Things can change. That's why we live with hope as believers. And eventually, 536, a few years later, the first group of Israelites was sent back to Jerusalem with the instruction and the materials go reestablish the temple of the living God. Opposition arose against them. People quarreled and fought against them. Don't allow it. And eventually the king stopped the work. Another group left 81 years later under Ezra. 455 BC and so it goes but as you can see God is at work and if you don't see that let me explain further Ezra goes 
but things still stumble and they go very slowly. But he that sits on the throne has a man and he's a plan. And these two come together 10 years later after Ezra. And up rises our dear friend Nehemiah, prepared by God over all those years. This morning, as we start this book, there are five things I want to point out to you. And next Sunday, Donna is going to be here preaching, and she's going to take you further into chapter one and what we are doing at the moment. Five things I want us to learn. Number one, God has a plan. That's a wonderful thing. God has a plan. For the people who were taken into captive in Babylon, who sat and lamented by the rivers, who knew about the despair, who had seen what had happened in Jerusalem, who were now slaves and all the hardship, etc., etc., they must have wondered at times, where is God? God had promised. But just real life sometimes, you read the newspapers, you get your daily dose of things that pop up on your phone. I can't even think what they're called. You know what I mean. Telling us how things are going and you think, wow, how can that happen in Syria at the moment? The floods in Mozambique, global warming. Financial crisis again, possibly, yes, no. And then there's this factor, that factor. And you think sometimes, where is God? Brexit, post-Christian secularism. Church, is it relevant or irrelevant? We heard this morning, I think it was in the prayer meeting, Starting another church in London was that here this morning. Do we need that? You think, where, where is God? Revival? Seriously? Can it be? But you see, as through passage after passage in the Bible, you see the purposes of God working out. His times are not quite our times, praise God. He does things according to his sovereign plan. In fact, Psalm 115 says, God does all he pleases. And you think, oh, that's a scary verse. Give somebody total power. But when that someone is love, when that someone is holiness, where everything they do is in purity and holiness, you think, wow. Samuel Martin, ha, the devil's acre, you think so? No, because I carry promises. I've got this little chapel, there are 22 of us. It's not dissimilar, actually, quite a few less than here this morning. Imagine starting off, I don't know if they had an organ or what they would have used, someone pumping it, whatever they did, singing some of the hymns thinking, oh, you know, we're missing a few this morning. Couldn't get here. The roads were too muddy. Thinking, wow, this is tough. Where is God in this? 
But in his heart is burning promises because God has got a plan. He has got a plan. And what a legacy those 22 have left for us in Westminster. What a testimony. There's not one preacher here in the UK and much wider that doesn't go to the resources that came out of that community. Martin Lloyd-Jones, my dad was a Campbell Morgan follower. He gave me books. You must read this man, you know. It was wonderful. And then came Martin Lloyd-Jones, his series on, on Ephesians, on revival, on Romans, and so it goes. For those of us who preach a lot, you go there and you listen, you think, wow. And these 22 left, started something that grew. It was a seed in the mud, in the slum, and it grew and grew. What an impact. God has a plan. He is working it out. We are part of it. Number two, I better go a bit quicker. God has his person in place. He's got his plan, and he's got a man in this case, Nehemiah. Part of God's plan are people like you and I, men and women. Please see how God positioned him. Right at the end of chapter 1, it says, In those days, because things had changed, I was the king's cupbearer. Everybody know what a cupbearer was? Most would do, have been in churches, some who haven't. During these days, the kings were very scared of being poisoned, so they would have a risk taker with a death wish. <laughs> Pioneer with a death wish, I don't know. <laughs> Tasting all their food, drinking all their wine, everybody would watch. <laughs> Is he going to go start frothing at the mouth and be poisoned? Imagine that job. I mean, you've really got to be quite a secure person. Nehemiah? Okay, let me go. Maybe it's a risk taker who loves food. <laughs> as I heard one person say before. The cupbearer would step up, and the king would call for his wine. They'd bring the wine, pour it, and before they gave it to the king, they would pass it to the cupbearer. I understand in the British Museum are some of Nehemiah's cups. I've never seen them myself, but you can see them. Okay? Pass the test, and he waits a while, and then passes it to the king. You might think, what a job! Let me just say this to you. There most probably wasn't a more trusted person in King Artaxerxes' kingdom. He needed faithfulness. He needed trustworthiness. He needed someone who would put his life on the line for the king. Maybe he had no choice. I don't know. I'm not sure a poster went up. Job offer, cupbearer. But Nehemiah was a cupbearer, most trusted, most presentable. He was in the king's eye all the time. He most probably got the best robes. Because every time, cupbearer, <coughs> amazing position, perfect calling, as I've said, for a risk taker who loves food. You've come to us with London. Some of you are in London. And you think, well, you know, I feel quite insignificant at times. I feel irrelevant. Why, why am I here? God's moved us. 
this has been hard. I thought catching the train to London every week or driving in would be cool. But I've realized now we're eight months in, not so cool. This train, why do they always work on our line on Sundays? All these things start to happen. God's working out his purposes. And so he calls a group of people. And he says, I want you, Jackie. Esther. Joseph. Calls together. Waiting for the outworking of his plan. I could go around this room and speak to you about each one. Each one in this room. God has called you for a moment where you will begin and some of you already begun to function in your role in bringing the glory of God to this part of the nation of the city and to the ends of the nations. Don't think, oh, just, why did I come here? I'm, I'm not used so much. Hang in there. Press through. Hold on tight. Don't give up. Don't give up. God will release you. Maybe he's called you here just to put you in a hospital for a moment of time. While I was preparing this, I remembered a story which I was going to use in here. And I thought, I'm going to check it out. And then I found out that it was fiction. It's a story that was started many, many years ago about Alexander Fleming, how he saved young Winston Churchill's life and how he tested a new medicine on him and it saved his life. And it's an amazing count. It was beautifully done, but it was actually fiction. Never happened because he hadn't even got to penicillin by then or anything like that. But God can use us in moments. I'm glad I checked it out because I would have used it and would have been totally wrong. But in hospitals, colleges, Charles, business leaders, just that one moment where you sit with that young person or that person in the city, that sick patient, whoever it is, that school child, that boss of yours, whatever, and out of you comes the words of God for a moment. God has placed us here. Don't just think of yourself as just an addition, but put yourself, think of yourself. I'm a Samuel Martin. I'm one of the 22 for this time with many others in other churches. Amen. So God has a plan and he has a man and many, many women, just in case you want to ask. Number three, I want us to see that God doesn't look for people with long pedigrees. Number three, God's man doesn't need a pedigree. So who is our man? He is Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Oh, cool. Okay, who's Hakaliah? We haven't a clue. It's his father. Where does he come from? No one knows. That's as far as we get. Where did he get raised up? Where did he come? Which tribe? We don't know. God chooses someone in the world's eyes who's insignificant. 
Ezra, if you read the book of Ezra, there's a whole, almost a chapter just detailing who Ezra was. Because I think he was a priest, so they wanted to give the whole line going back, his whole heritage. But with Nehemiah, the man that calls, God calls to do this incredible task of restoring the walls of Jerusalem and building up a people again that was spread out and broken and depressed. He just calls one born to a father. We all are. And a mother. So the point, God doesn't choose people with pedigree. Once again, if you read 1 Corinthians, I'm working through that in my quiet times at the moment. I'm working through this new translation because sometimes when you stick with the same translation, the words just, you know them, so they flow through. So I changed to the New Living uh, Translation. I've enjoyed it very much. But you come to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians and a passage I've preached on, particularly in Africa, where people have very low self-esteem. And we had this big vision to reach the ends of the earth out of an old, cold barn on a farm in Africa. And so I taught them, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. And they said, yes. Instead, God chose the things of the world the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. Wow, it goes on. He chose things that are powerless. Do you feel powerless sometimes? London? I catch the train in here. I'm coming to London. God's called us to impact London. I feel <gasps> powerless. He calls those that are powerless to shame the powerful. Oh, okay. That's a different way of looking at it. He chooses the things despised by the world. I hope there's not too many of those of you that feel that way. Things that, but yet again as Christians sometimes, you believe in Jesus? Ha! Seriously? But hasn't science proved that it all started with... Uh, was it a big bang or a little bang or no bang, depending which scientist you listen to? And you say, no, I, I believe in Jesus. It changed my heart, it changed my life, it gave me hope, it gave me a future, it gave me peace. Ha, despised. Things counted as nothing at all and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of the Lord. So he chooses us, and we will feel insignificant at times. But Trinity already, we've seen salvation, hallelujah. We've seen baptisms, hallelujah. We've seen amazing giving. <laughs> Almost again next week. Let me just say to you, your giving Trinity has enabled a group of people to travel across from West India, right across to East India, to Orissa, where 92 Christians died 10 years ago, where the churches were decimated, people were killed, many um, Hindus died trying to save the Christians. Both Christians and Hindus died under the hand of the fundamentalists. 
two years ago, we felt God call us back there to go plant churches. Your giving and enabled a team there now. 11 people were saved yesterday, all young men and women. Amen. Amen. Franco said to me this morning, Steve, they're all on the beach at 4 a.m. this morning at Arissa on the east coast of India, calling out to God. He said, God's giving us people. We're not insignificant. We might feel it at times. We're ministering around the world. People out of us today are Donna is down in Isle of Wight, helping them catch a great big vision for the world. This week, please pray for me. I head to the northwest of America, gathering all the churches there, building, strengthening in, in Washington State, in um, Montana. Please pray for me. The Bible school this week with Daniel and Ali and others. Thank you so much, Esther. Plays such a big part. Tony, I saw you there all the time. It's not insignificant. We're raising up a generation who are going to plant more churches. Stand firm. Press on. Finish the race. That's number three. God's man doesn't need a pedigree. Number four. Better go quickly. I turn my watch upside down so I remember to look at it because I'm African at heart and time is... Okay, number four. Nehemiah sees with God's eyes. He's comfortable. He's in the citadel of Susa. Anybody know what that is? Well, it was the winter palace. So during the winter months, the king would move further north. Lovely place to be. He's dressed brilliantly. He gets to eat and drink the best food in the palace. Did you work that one out? He has to for the king. The best joint. You know, they cut the joint and they think, ah, oh, there's the part. Okay, you know, we'll give that to the officials. This part is for the king and the cupbearer. And he gets to taste He's there, but he, he is there, but in his heart is a heart that's turned to the purposes of God. And so when some brothers come back from Jer Judah, from Jerusalem, the first thing he says, how are things going? Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer this, and you don't have to make eye contact with me. But if you miss a Sunday here... Do you Sunday afternoon wonder, I wonder how it went to Trinity this morning? Because that'll show where your heart is. Or is it, oh no, but it's F1 this afternoon. And we'll decide what the Premier League outcome is going to be. And there are all these things, sorry ladies, I, I might have lost some of you there. These are men things. I don't know, sorry, I won't speak for you. But these are the things that capture our hearts. But not a Nehemiah. He's living with the purposes of God. I can't be in Jerusalem, but my heart is there. This week, as we go, I go to America. Would you have a little bit of your heart? I pray for Steve. Could it be away from Heather? We're going to almost be away a month from each other, Heather and I. So I'm going to America, come back for a day, and then Heather goes to Africa because there's been a real breakthrough in our school in Dichlebeng, and she's going to help someone to go and make it happen. 
That's something. Oh, not my life. Jesus, when he saw Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, and it says that he wept over the city. Nehemiah-like. But not only Jesus, but God himself. When Jonah refuses to take the message of salvation to Nineveh, the most ungodly city in the world, Time doesn't allow me to tell you about it. Most ungodly city. You think of the most ungodly place in the world. And that's where Jonah was asked to go. And go and tell them there's salvation in the Lord. If they turn to me, I will save them. Jonah said, no ways. And you know the story. Tries to run away. Thrown overboard. Picked up in a fish big whale, whatever it was, spat out on the beach, and God says, now go finish what I called you. No. But right at the end of the book of Jonah, when God holds him to account for his heart attitude, the Lord said, you pity a plant, because Jonah's plant that had kept him shady had just died. You pity a plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the day. He said, it's, it's almost trivial. You didn't even have anything to do with that. And then he says to him, and should not I pity Nineveh? This is God, the most ungodly city in the world. This is God speaking. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? God is the God of salvation and of hope and a future. So even the most terrible situations, the devil's acre, God looks and he sees life. Because in a moment, if he finds a man, a woman, who will rise up and follow him. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left? Jonah, they are lost. And also much cattle. God put that in the Bible for me, because I've got some cattle on our farm in Africa. He cares about them. Tim Keller explains about that scripture, and he said, if you wanted to put that, and give it a context, he said, God wept over Nineveh. And if, we, brothers and sisters, we are going to impact the city, and I need to finish in two minutes to fulfill our call, we will need to learn to love the city need to start to see it say God would you would you just open my eyes for what's happening out there I love London they say if you're tired of London you're tired of life and I thought oh my lord I, please show me give me this heart and so I've been thinking about how do I do that I believe a few things we we need to start to to understand London and Maybe together we can post things. We can, we can start to understand what's happening in London. Maybe we can post 
prayer needs. Maybe instead of being in here every Sunday, we can be here for a while, worship and pray, and then walk the streets and just pray. Just pray. Just walk down the street saying, God, show me. Open my eyes. What would you be doing if you were walking the street? And lastly, number five, Nehemiah postures himself to own his city and to act. He doesn't say to his brothers, oh, that's terrible news. Well, don't worry, you safe in Susa. I've got the ear of the king. I can make you comfortable here as I'm comfortable. Doesn't say that. Says that he mourned, he fasted, he wept by the news. He takes ownership. And not only does he act, he begins to pray. And if you read his prayer, which I couldn't get to this morning, you start to see that in his prayer life, plans start to be uh, born in his heart. And there's a key right at the end where he says, now, Lord, give me favor with the king because something's brewing. He's asking for forgiveness. He's repenting. He's humbling himself before God. But in that moment, God is starting to birth this. And he's thinking, Lord, if no one will build up the walls, I will build them. How about having that heart this morning? Some of you younger people trying to work out your place in life. Can I give you a project? Will you change London? Me? Do you know who I am? I'm studying at the moment. I'm trying to battle. I can't even afford a Costa coffee on the way home after church. Thank goodness for Trinity's excellent coffee. I tell you what, if you stand before God and you say, Lord, I see the depravity of the city. I see the hardship, the lostness, the, as Andrew prayed earlier, the, the homelessness, the loneliness as Caleb prayed. And we go on and on. I s- show it to me. Here I am. Here I am for London. Let me close. Nehemiah is a fabulous book. Most people use it to teach leadership. But if that's your only view of Nehemiah, you're missing out really badly. Because it does. It's a lot about leadership. And J.I. Packer and many others have written books on leadership just from Nehemiah. But it's a whole lot more. If you're downhearted, it's for you. Because you're going to come across people who are downhearted in this book. It repositions you. If you're looking for an opportunity to fully participate in the purpose of God, this book's for you. Because you're going to find a way to do it. If you're a grumbler, grumblers, you chose. This book's for you. God will realign you and give you hope. Show his big plan. God is in charge after all. Let me be patient, because with faith and patience, I'll inherit the promises of God. It's for the rich. It's for the poor. It's for the fearful. 
It's for the distracted. This book is for everyone, not just leaders. May I ask you, as we go forward, to find yourself in the book of Nehemiah. And if we can respond to God, we start next week with our offering. Okay, here we go again. What a privilege. I wonder who paid for the chapel to be built up the road in Buckingham Gate. <laughs> I wonder who put that forward. It, you know, maybe Lord Shaftesbury gave some, I don't know, some of the guys, but those 22, hey, let's make this work. Put your hands out in front of you. Maybe, why don't you stand, stretch your legs. Let me finish there. Gareth, could you and team come up? Let's sing one hearty song as we close off this morning. I wonder if you don't mind, would you put your hands out in front of you? Don't have to. But you know, Nehemiah postured himself before God. He wept, he mourned, he fasted, he lay before God, he sat before God, he walked, I'm sure, he cried, he wept, you name it. All I'm asking for is two empty hands. Say after me. God's got a plan. God's got a plan. Thank you, Lord. Now say God's got a man or a woman, whichever you are. I'm going to say God's got a man for obvious reasons. God's got a man. That's right. He's got all of us. Come and speak out three names in the church you know. He's got a Daniel and a Toria. He's got this one. Come and just speak them out quickly. Just around the room. He's got an Andrew. He's got a Tony. He's got an AJ. Yeah, he's got all of them. A Richard. A Chris, yeah. A Georgie. He's got a Joseph. He's got you. Matthew, he's got you. Sybil. Say after me, I don't need a pedigree. I don't need a pedigree. Yeah. Lord, thank you. You choose the things that are not. To confound the world. Would you confound the world through us? <laughs> through we gathered here, Lord. Jesus. Jesus. Say after me, God, move my heart for the city. That's if you mean it. God, move my heart for the city. Move my heart, Lord. Move my heart for London. Move my heart, Lord. Move my heart for the city. Father God, I pray over us this morning. And I pray, Lord, that as we read the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, you would shift us from all our different places and give us our part of the wall because as we read on, Lord, we know in 52 days, 53 days, they finished the wall. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> they finished it. Lord, let us finish strong together. Yeah. We pray in Jesus' name. Yes. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.